Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. Waking up in the morning, I can't remember yesterday with you. that song is going to pump us up that's a great energetic dance tune for this month's episode that is called westworld it's a 2018 single from evan gia it's available on apple music very catchy i'm very very catchy it had a you know what was it uh, dick clark used to say you know had a beat and easy to dance to so i forget what the ratings were i'd give it an eight out of ten yeah, I have never told you, but I always, these songs that I pick are earworms. And for a month until we record again, I've got one of the two songs drilled into my head, just repeating itself over and over and over. Why Westworld? Why why that song? This month, we're taking a vacation. You know, we've yeah. been traveling all summer, so why not just <laughs> take another vacation? This vacation is going to be a little different. We're not headed to the drive-in. We're headed to Westworld. And... Future World. We're going to be taking a look at the uh, the two 1970s films, Westworld from 1973, Future World from 1976, about vacations gone awry. I guess is the best way to describe it. But Richard, nothing can go wrong. It's kind of like kids being left on their own out on some you know deserted island. It never ends well. Yeah, when you've got all these robots surrounding you, it's like yeah. Something is just waiting to happen. It's kind of like James Brolin and Richard Benjamin. That's you and me. You know, we're going together on vacation. Which, who do you want to be, Richard Benjamin or? Well, I don't know. You know, spoiler alert, one makes it out alive and the other one doesn't. So I guess I'll let you be Richard Benjamin. I'll let you make it out alive. I'll I'll take one for the team. All right. And I do want to talk about that when we get there. Let's just throw this out there that I think I could probably be a better shot than the character of John Blaine, especially for somebody who had been to Westworld once. He was a horrible shot. So I am Richard Benjamin with ClassicHorrors.club. <laughs> and I'm James Brolin from MonsterMovieKid.wordpress.com. Let's call this meeting to order. We'll start off with lots of old business this week. This is so exciting. We have several new members, so many that we will take turns reading their names. And these, when I say members, they're people that have joined our Facebook group page, the Classic Horrors Club podcast. Very excited to have them. I think we successfully greeted everybody through the page, but we'd like to do it in person the next time we have a meeting. So I'll start out and say welcome to Larry Torrey. Welcome to Scott Shelton. Scott F. Borges. And I'm going to butcher this, and I apologize up front. Dennis Beresford. That's how I would have said it. Andrew Paxton. 
Johnny Doe. Eric Brooks. Albert Ramirez. Kim Eggleston. And Forgotten TV. You, you know we've reached that level when other pages and podcasts start joining us. It's kind of like we're just beginning the takeover one page at a time. Yeah, no, that's fun. And we can cross promote and everything and hopefully expand both of our audiences. Some of these new members are already participating in, in some feedback. And we do have some feedback. In fact, let's since you mentioned that, let's move right into it. We'll tell everyone at the, after this how they can leave feedback. I, a couple of these came through the Facebook group page. And I think one was an email. Not sure. But uh, you want to start out and uh, give our first bit of feedback? Yeah. And I think this one was email, if I remember correctly. Uh, our friend Billy Dunleavy stated, Hey, guys, good show with two classics. I watch The Fog three to four times a year. I love it. And it's my favorite Carpenter film alongside The Thing. Phantasm is a fun one, but I don't find it as rewatchable as The Fog. Again, fun film, though. Keep up the good work and thanks for the shout out. Interesting. That's the opposite opinion that I had when we did the episode, but that's totally fine. I think, you know, Phantasm is one of those films, as we talked about, that I think with each viewing, I think Phantasm gets a little more fun. You don't really know any more than you did on the first viewing well, exactly what's going on, but it's a fun film. Two very different films. And our next bit of feedback is from Michael Dodd. I, this is a fun one. I saw Phantasm in a double feature with Prophecy in 1979 at the Starview Drive-In in Cleveland, Tennessee. I watched The Fog at an indoor theater when it first ran. Both movies are very good, and I revisit them every few years. When you guys travel back in time next summer to your drive-in rounds, maybe you can drop by the Starview. I saw many good movies there growing up. Good podcast, fellow Monster Movie fans. Thank you, Michael. Richard picks our locales for the drive-ins, but I'm sure he will look into that next year when we plan our summer at the drive-in again. Yeah, we had a couple of people, uh, I think, talking about drive-in locations and suggesting. Uh, we, I know Johnny Doe, our new member, he posted a comment about suggesting uh, a drive-in location. Mm -hmm. Just to let everybody know, not only do we need to find the, a drive-in ad from back in the day, but it needs to be movies that we could talk about here on the show. So, because we actually do legitimate, you know, movies that were really were double, triple, you know, quadruple features, whatever. There's a lot of drive-in ads out there, but we have to get real specific. A real movie double feature that played, you know, on a particular weekend. I know there's a lot of sources out there, but if anyone out there has suggestions with movies that would cover what we can, you know, talk about here, which is pretty much everything from the silent era, I would say up to the 80s. We've covered 80s movies. Uh, I don't think we want to go beyond the 80s, and we wouldn't do 80s movies all summer. We try to kind of balance it out. But if you've got some drive-in ads that, you know, you think would be stuff that would fit in within the Classic Horrors Club podcast wheelhouse, Go ahead and, and shoot us an email or uh, reach out, post it on the uh, Facebook page, uh, reach out through uh, Facebook Messenger. And Michael, you didn't mention uh, what you thought of Prophecy. I know we didn't do that in the show, but I'd be very interested if you'd like to shoot us a, a response and, and tell us what you thought of Prophecy from 1979. I've never seen that movie. Oh, you never have? Okay. No. And I have only seen it once, uh, never wanting to see it again, but... <laughs> It's been many years. I've kind of been wanting to give it another try. So, Michael, let me know if I should. 
You want to take our last one, Richard? Yes. Yeah, so kind of shifting from uh, the old news to new news, we had a comment from uh, Dennis Beresford. Again, hope <laughs> I'm saying that correctly. And he's talking about Future World, which we're talking about this month's show. I've literally just acquired the Blu-ray of this old favorite. So he's playing along at home, which is what we encourage all of you to do. Hopefully you guys were on Facebook and saw the message we put out just before Labor Day weekend. There was a movie called Frogs playing on Sven And that just might come into play for a future episode. Spoiler alert. I think that was the second time he's played that this year. And uh, it's actually sitting on my DVR. Thank you, everybody that left feedback. We mentioned that that was done through the Facebook group page and an email at classichorrors.club at gmail.com. We have a phone number you can call to leave those messages. It's 616-649-2582. And speaking of earworms, 616-649. Got me off guard. Club! Yes, there we go. Instead of drilling in, though, that one's going to drill out. Unfortunately, not in and out the same ear, through the brain and out the other side. Any other old business before we proceed? I don't believe so. Very well, then. Let's take a break, and we'll come back and take the hovercraft to Westworld. MGM presents Westworld. Attention, please. We will soon be landing at Westworld, the ultimate resort. We have you on grid five, over. It consists of three worlds of the past. Locking in now. Worlds where you can live out your every fantasy. There's Roman world, the lusty, decadent delights of Imperial Pompeii. Notify ground crews. Medieval world, chivalry and combat in 13th century Europe. And Westworld. Lawless violence on the American frontier of the 1880s. Each resort is maintained by reliable computer technology and peopled by lifelike robot men and women. Let's stand by for resort activation. Ready on six, on five, on four, on three, on two. Activate now. Our robots are programmed to provide you with an unforgettable vacation. Dinner at 7, breakfast at 6.30. Get lunch on your own. Don't look like much here, but we have everything. You mean to tell me he's a robot? What'll it be? Uh, vodka martini on the rocks with a twist of lemon. Very dry, please. Just give him whiskey. He's new in town. Many elements of the Delos Resort are potentially dangerous. That's part of the appeal. Go on. You say something, boy. Kill him. Your move. Our technology is designed to provide all this in complete safety. In Westworld, frustrations find release. Desire ends in satisfaction. Let me handle it. And all in a controlled environment. That's not supposed to happen. We know you'll enjoy your stay in Westworld. Hold it. The ultimate resort. Let me do it this time. Where nothing, nothing can possibly go wrong. I'm shot. Go wrong. Raw. Go wrong. Oh, my God. Shut down. Shut down immediately. 
from MGM, starring Yul Brynner, Richard Benjamin, and James Brolin. Westworld, the ultimate resort. Boy, do we have a vacation for you. For you. For you. For you. Delos, the vacation of the future today. Medieval world, Roman world, and Westworld. A thousand dollars a day. Boy, have we got a vacation for you. For you. For you. <laughs> John Blaine returns to Westworld for a second time with his friend Peter Martin. While there, an increasing number of breakdowns and failures spreads like an infection through the lifelike androids that populate the amusement park for adults. Westworld was written and directed by Michael Crichton. It stars Yul Brynner, Richard Benjamin, James Brolin. So that's Yul Brynner, you and me. Running time, 88 minutes, released on November 21st, 1973 by Metro-Golden-Mayer MGM. Richard, what do you think of Westworld? I love it. Westworld has, has been one of those go-to movies for me. I, I have seen this. It's been a while, actually, since I'd seen it, but I've seen it quite a few times over the years. My first time viewing, I want to say, was was probably on television at some point in the 1970s. I remember watching it on HBO, but it would have been... Like, well, we did have HBO very early on, so it might have been in the late 70s. I remember, you know, it popped up on television with great regularity, and I had it recorded on VHS off of television. I had the DVD for quite a few years. I was almost tempted to upgrade to Blu-ray, but I decided to keep my my DVD, and, and you know, it, the picture is... It's a 1970s films. There was a grain to a lot of those films that Blu-ray enhances to a degree but i think and this is just me blu-ray can enhance like some older films a little better than it can say movies of like the 70s or 80s some movies they just have a natural grain to them and i think sometimes you can upgrade almost too much and it really doesn't either enhance the picture or almost makes it look a little worse. So I was happy with the with the DVD. And that's, again, very non-scientific opinion. A fun movie, perfect running time. There was a longer version made of this originally. They, they had to cut a lot out. And, and I'm trying to think, gosh, I think if this would have gone longer than this running time, I think it would have, it would have been stretching out the story a little too much. But they were I, they cut like a good solid 30 minutes of footage out. Hmm. So it was closer to the two hour running time. Uh, the bank, actual bank robbery that takes place, which you, you really hear and don't see, that was actually on screen. I don't know if like who was involved in it, but they the bank robbery, uh, there was more robot killing scenes. There was a apparently a torture rack scene. The chase scene was longer. And the death of the gunslinger was also a little different in the end. And uh, the initial test audiences didn't like some of this stuff. And, and so they went ahead and trimmed it down to uh, the 90-minute running time, which I think is, is perfect. As you know, I often say, sometimes films are too long. This one, for me, was just right. Yeah, and there's no gaps like that you can tell something's missing. I don't know what's going on. I, I didn't know that. So that's interesting. 
to hear. I love Westworld as well. I do want to say, though, that this time it actually it was kind of dragging for me at the beginning. Now, once the action picks up, it's just nonstop. And that's what you remember. And that, you know, carries the movie, the the kind of little bit of slow part at the beginning is forgotten by the time that end comes. And it's just a, a terrific movie. I don't remember my first time. Fairly certain it would have been at the time in theaters. I have a better memory of seeing Future World in theaters, and I'm sure I would have seen Westworld prior to that. There's so many things in this movie that were, you know, inspirational for other things later on. Mm -hmm. Um, The gunslinger character, the unstoppable robot or unstoppable being and I and I actually was aware of one of these. I wasn't aware of the other, but um, supposedly the Halloween, the character of Michael Myers, there was some inspiration, kind of the unstoppable force. I could see that to maybe a lesser degree, a much greater degree, though. And this is one that I have heard numerous times over the years that the gunslinger was inspirational for the Terminator. And Arnold Schwarzenegger apparently is on record for saying that he kind of patterned that original Terminator character from the very first movie after the gunslinger character. And that I could definitely see. And that's interesting because in later years prior to HBO doing their series, there was talk of a, of a remake with Arnold Schwarzenegger. I could definitely, that back then at the time, yeah, I could definitely had seen that. It would have been, uh, especially with that first Terminator movie, because I mean, the Terminator franchise is all over the place. You know, that first movie has kind of an edge and a grittiness to it. It was made in what, 82, 83. It still felt almost like a 70s movie in some ways. And that Terminator there is just, he's unstoppable. And he's going through the police station and he's just taking people out left and right. And yeah, as he continues to get battered and he's, you know, he loses his eye at one point. He just, you can't stop him. He keeps going. Interestingly enough, you know, Yul Brenner, who I thought was just so good as the gunslinger he has, Yul Brenner always had kind of a unique look about him. Sometimes his accent would come into play and he just had a certain way to present himself. He was known for The King and I and, and The Ten Commandments are probably his two biggest movies from that time period. Of course, The Magnificent Seven as well. And by this time, you know, his financially, he wasn't uh as on solid ground he didn't really want to do uh the gunslinger he kind of i think kind of viewed it as beneath him a little bit i mean he had done all these other things but he did it and i think he did it incredibly well and it did kind of start this film renaissance for him a little bit because he did some other sci-fi films around this time period that followed westworld the ultimate warrior he is in Future World, which we'll talk about mm-hmm. that. Also a movie called Death Rage. Uh, I think that was his last movie, actually. But he continued to act. He kind of brought the King and I back on, on stage, and he was touring with that right up until, you know, I think I think he was continuing to play that literally days before his death in 1985 at, at a young age of 65 of lung cancer. So he was 65 and 85, so he would have been – like 53 here, give or take. He seems a little older than 53. It works though, I think in in the party as that certain look. And then when his eyes go that silver, uh, which 
he was wearing contacts back then and contacts were incredibly painful to wear back then. So he did have problems with that. I think he even injured his eye at one point and uh, they had to kind of delay production, but I have always just loved just the, the way he walks. He's going through Roman world, you know, there's just bodies everywhere and the music that they're, that they're playing. Uh, Fred Carlin did the uh, soundtrack and I just love that. You know, that it's just storing thoughts in my head that I want to respond to things you said. First of all, speaking of franchises all over the place, although not to the same extent, Halloween. And let's return to that comment about John Carpenter using Yule Brenner as an example. Here's a branch of the Halloween franchise we haven't yet explored. Let's make a sequel. It'll happen after part two. It'll ignore everything that happened after that. And we learn that Michael Myers escaped from Westworld. He's an android. <laughs> that, you know, somebody somewhere is listening to you say that and thinking, you know what? We could do that. There's already got 17 branches on the Halloween tree. What's a, what's another one? You know, the next thing is you Brenner is shorter than I remembered. I, there's a scene he's yeah. standing right next to to us, Richard Benjamin and James Brolin, and uh, he is short. I didn't realize that. Yeah, it's 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 kind of funny sometimes when you see these actors and you just have this vision of like, well, he's Yul Brenner. He should be you know tall, so moated be you know, and then no. Well, you know, and he's... even in the context of the story, this scary android, you'd think he would be like sort of towering and big and strong and. That's kind of, I don't know, I, I noticed that this time, never noticed it before. So that was interesting. The soundtrack is just, well, it's a mix. You're right. That part is terrific. Yeah. The yeehaw comedy, whatever, during the bar brawl, however, I didn't much care for. Yeah. It was like a zany, I don't know what type of music. That happens a lot. We've been watching a lot of Godzilla films and some of the soundtracks on some of those Godzilla films, it's like, you know, it's ominous. All of a sudden, then it's like clown music in some of those early 70s Godzilla films that are really all over the place. Soundtrack, you know, is is everything to a movie. And when you get someone like a John Williams or a, a Fukube who where they, they know what to do and they just know right where to do it and they have a style and it works. And then you got someone like Fred Carlin who not on the same level and he got some good stuff. And then, yeah, let's do a comedy segment here. Yeah. It, it's a weird change of tone. And I don't, I think if you had someone, Jerry Goldsmith or other composers, they, they would have done something probably a bit different, but I will say that sometimes when in Westerns, when they do brawls like that, the music did change in Westerns to a more comic thing when you have a bar brawl like that. I mean, I actually think it kind of works. I was just saying I didn't care for it. It seemed kind of silly, but I think it does fit because there's that contrast of when they're in Westworld, that's the kind of music you get. And then when they burst out in their different places and it gets more sci science fiction-y, it goes to that other music. So I think it's appropriate. I mean, it didn't really bother me. It, I just, it's extreme. I wanted to point it out. Yeah, I mean, it didn't. I mean, it didn't throw me out either. It did, but it was one of the things like, wow, this is kind of changing the tone. But like, the more I'm thinking about it, westerns will do that too. You know, mm. when you have a scene like that, because there's some westerns that are that can have those lighthearted moments, you know, and the more serious moments. You know, before everything went dark, movies would have 
moments where the tone would change like that. And it kind of kept things balanced. So that was probably maybe the thought of, of putting that in there. It was like just a fun moment. I will say that it, that particular scene went on a little long. They could have shaved a little bit off that, that barroom fight. Cause it was kind of like, well, this is really going on a long time. Sometimes fight scenes that go on a long time, if they're choreographed, right. will work like they live, you know, it's got an amazing fight scene or, John Wayne and the Quiet Man, you know, the fight scene is just all over the countryside. That works. Yeah, this one was a little long, but still fun. So we talk about the android. I don't think they ever call them robots, do they? I mean, they're called, they're hosts. You know, that's what they're called within the context of the park. I, but androids, I, I don't know. Anyway, we talk about that a lot. That's kind of what we remember, the gunslinger. But I kind of like the human aspect of this. We've got to do this, and it may be obvious, but Michael Crichton, you know, is going to do another amusement park gone bad movie in the future called Jurassic Park, but it's very different. It's like the flip side of a coin, you know, this is much darker, that's more optimistic, even though bad things happen. I mean, it's more optimistic. Like the humans are more sort of responsible, I felt like. I mean, they're hedonistic people coming to this park where they can pretend to kill people and they can sleep with more than one woman at the same time and kind of a place they can go to be bad. You know, that's kind of what appeals to them to go there. So from that sense, they like kind of are getting what they deserve. Yeah. And then you take that further because, well, it's humans that designed all of this and they end up being stupid's probably too extreme, but. They know things aren't working. They don't know why. Yeah. One of the main guys goes to pick up a phone and call and it's dead. And he goes, well, this isn't even working, you know, and hangs up the phone. I find that very interesting. And then that leads into some of the androids or hosts were built by other androids or hosts. Therefore, the humans have no idea why they are failing. I I find that detail really interesting yeah that relationship of humans to technology well you have the one one doctor the the chief supervisor alan oppenheimer who was the second dr rudy wells on the six million dollar man amongst other things there's a meeting and he's basically saying we need to shut down the park now you know he he sees the Things can go bad. We don't know what's going on. We need to shut down. And then you've got the rest of the advisors are like, oh, I don't think everything, this will be fine. There are, will be multiple Star Trek references in this, this week's episode. So I will say that I recognized one of the supervisors at that table. I don't know what his, his name was other than maybe just a supervisor. Actor Davis Roberts. I only recognize him. Uh, he has kind of a unique look. He played the character of Dr. Ozaka in the third season Star Trek episode, The Empath. He's one of the scientists who basically they're they're dead before Kirk and Spock and McCoy ever get there. They get taken by the aliens and they get experimented on and and they see like a a video footage of them disappearing. And then the next time we see them, they're they're in a display cabinet and he's just kind of frozen and he's dead. There's a lot of familiar faces, a lot of familiar TV faces. If you grew up in this time period, you're sitting there saying, oh, I know that person. I know that person. I know. Let's talk about one of them since we're here, Dick Van Patten. 
Yes. Loved his role. I mean, he's the shy, mousy kind of man, you know, who gets the opportunity to be sheriff. And he that goes on a little power trip. Very, very minor subplot, but just woven in seamlessly and very entertaining, I thought. I think his, I wonder if his character would have been maybe a little bigger. He was billed as banker. So he might have been involved in the bank robbery mm. scenes that got cut, I would suspect. I recognize him for being an eight is enough, you know, which was late seventies, early eighties show. Uh, of course, Spaceballs, and he was in Soylent Green, which I don't remember his character in Soylent hmm. Green. That's actually something I'm going to have to really. I've been wanting to visit that movie again, anyway. And he was also in Six Million Dollar Man, the Bionic Boy episode. I remember he played a shoe salesman because his son was in that episode. And so they had a scene together where he was selling the kid shoes. What did you think of the special effects? I thought they were pretty good. And there's not that there's anything really spectacular that needs to be done. But the the one thing I think about is when they remove Yul Brenner's face. The camera's there. I think that's really his face. They like put a screwdriver in or whatever to pry it off. The camera moves and it goes behind the back of the person leaning over him. So you don't really see. But then when it comes around... It's obviously for a split second, the fake face, but they get it off pretty fast. And it looks, it was done really well. I thought that that looked very realistic. You know, you got to think of the time period, you know, obviously, well, gosh, we could do a million things better now, but I remember there's like a brief scene in, in, uh, of a robot in Star Trek in the second season, I met episode, and it's not nearly as good as this, this from this time period, I thought was pretty good. And definitely, reminded me of Fembots from the $6 million man, uh, which came after this. And so I, I know nothing you will tell me would convince me. Otherwise they had to have been inspired by Westworld. Oh, and I thought I read somewhere that they were, someone acknowledged that. Okay. It'd have to be. I think the Fembots, the face of the Fembots was probably a little better than what we had here, but it was also, like three years later, because I think they and they had given them eyes or something. Um, I think, well, you know, and I'm trying to think like, so the following, so this was 73, 74 was the first season of the Six Million Dollar Man. And that's the first time they had the robot, uh, Day of the Robot that was played by uh, John Saxon. And it was the first battle between Steve Austin and a robot. Actually, the robot looks very similar to robots in or the androids in Westworld. Had to have been some inspiration there. And of course, then the Fembots just kind of continued it. But yeah, good for the time period. And I also like this isn't necessarily a special effect, but you know, at night the sun goes down, they like flip a switch and everyone just freezes. That's a little cheesy because you can tell they just freeze the frame. Yeah, yeah. But it's quick. So again, it's like somebody realized the uh, obstacles they were facing and did the best they could. Then that's really cool. In the morning, they flip the switch and everyone just comes to life. I thought that was kind of fun. There's a lot of, uh, and we'll talk about this a little bit when we get to the TV show, but there's a lot of stock footage from this movie that gets used in the Beyond Westworld TV show. Oh, really? But actually, you know, it works for the most part. But the guy rocking in the rocking chair in front of the building and the uh, stagecoach and the, the horses that come riding into town, those actually are incorporated into the opening credits of Beyond Westworld. So they they did use some scenes. So mm. When we get to it, if we remember, I, I want to circle back to that when I talk about the HBO series. Okay. 
the rattlesnake scene. James Brolin, you get by, bit by a rattlesnake. And I didn't know this till after the fact, but when I watched it this time, I realized, man, that thing is hanging on there a long time. I mean, he's flinging yeah. his arm and it's not yeah. flying off. Did you read about that? No, I didn't. I did. It's a real snake. It, oh it was God. one okay. that was uh, not poisonous. I don't know what kind it was, but he his arm was padded so that it could really bite, but it wouldn't hurt him. But it didn't attach directly on the pad and his bottom fangs went in actually into James Rowland's arm. Oh, wow. So that was like real of him trying to shake it and get it off his arm. It didn't do him any harm. I didn't read. I don't think it delayed production or anything, but I thought that was funny because that snake really was hanging on. Well, it would be a little unnerving. You're expecting the snake to come off. And you're like, all right, all right, get the thing off, get the thing off. And then just keep rolling. You know? Yeah. That's kind of funny. That, you know, the snake actually, you know, was a prop that they ended up using again in Beyond Westworld. It, it shows oh. up in the in the pilot episode. I was like, because there's a, a particular look to the snake. When I see that, I was like, oh, well, that's, you know, somebody went to the prop warehouse and got, hey, we have that robotic snake from the first movie. Yeah, they used it again. And, and, and that is so cool, by the way, that you see that. And it, well, it looks like a real snake because it is. But then, you know, in the next scene, they're like, taking a little compartment off to see what went wrong. And you see the circuitry in there. Yeah. That's really cool. I thought, yeah. Now I did not recognize the Star Trek reference that you did. However, I recognize the obvious one and you haven't mentioned that yet. Do you want to talk about her? Uh, well, yes, uh, we have uh, Majel Barrett plays the character of Miss Carrie, kind of the uh, dance hall slash madam uh more or less there's a uh, a house of ill repute that's where uh peter and john go to to sow their wild oats and uh actually peter martin ends up with the character of arlette who is also a, a familiar face so majel barrett obviously played several characters in star trek she was the original number one in the cage pilot. She was Christine Chapel, and she was also in um, Star Trek: The Next Generation as Waxana Troy. She eventually married Gene Roddenberry. Actually, in the 1960s, she married Gene Roddenberry. So she's often referred to as the first lady of Star Trek, as Gene Roddenberry is is the the founder. She's the first lady. So um, not a big part, but small little supporting role. Arlette, the, the dance hall girl, played by Linda Gay Scott, uh, who did lots of TV appearances around this time. Uh, she was the character of Moth, one of the Riddler's gun malls in uh, episodes of Batman. She was also a, an alien in the Green Hornet and was a space hippie in the third season of Lost in Space. Another supporting character, and the reason I'm mentioning this real quick, although by the time this episode goes live, I think we'll be late, but um, Sharon Winters played the Apache girl. She's the girl that took the food to the uh, jail cell after Peter gets mm. arrested. Uh, she played Catwoman's sidekick in episodes of Batman. She played the character of Eni. Both Sharon Winters and Linda Gay Scott will be at this year's Mid-Atlantic Nostalgia Convention, which I believe was next is next weekend as we record, but it will now be the past weekend by the time this episode goes live. I'm sure that uh, our friend Steve Turek will have an opportunity to meet them and maybe interview them on his yeah. show. They've got quite a few guests this year from Batman and from Star Trek, a lot of uh, women who were guests on Star Trek. 
as we're going with other characters, I'll just rattle off some here. We, you know, we talked about Yul Brenner, so Richard Benjamin, character actor, I guess is the best way to describe him. He never an A-list star, but he was pretty prolific in the 70s and 80s. Sci-fi wise, he did a show in, in 1978 called Quark. I don't know if you ever remember that show. Oh, yeah. I think it ran for half a season, maybe. I think they were like a garbage scow or something, if I recall. I loved Quark, and I remember watching it, always being upset that it was being preempted and uh, eventually got canceled. That was a show that I loved. Uh, James Brolin, of course, Marcus Welby, MD, was his big show in the 70s. He was also in the Amityville Horror which we have talked about previously on this show in our Margot Kidder episode. He was also in several episodes of Batman when he was a young guy back in the 60s. And of course, best known today, he's still married to Barbara Streisand. Correct? I believe yes, so, and, yeah. Mr. Barbara Streisand. And the uh, the father of Josh Brolin, who is probably having a more prolific career than he did, although James Brolin still acts. Josh has kind of made a name for himself by carrying playing the character of Thanos in the uh, the Marvel universe, and that certainly puts him on a whole nother level. Um, we have the character of the Medieval Knight, played by an actor Norman Bartold, which not a name you're going to know, but you'll recognize him. He's a character actor. He popped up in lots of stuff. He was in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Now, this is going a little deeper dive. We've got one of the technicians was. Uh, played by Kenneth Washington, who played the character of Baker in one of the seasons of Hogan's Heroes. And this is something I didn't know. He played the character of Watkins in the third season Star Trek episode, That Which Survives. He played an engineer who gets killed. Actually didn't recognize him in that role, and I've seen that episode 10 million times, so that was kind of fun. And uh, this is one you might have recognized, another technician played by actor Jared Martin, better known as Dusty Farlow on Dallas. For those of us who enjoyed Dallas back in the day, he was the character who, he was the son of Clayton Farlow, had an affair with Sue Ellen, and then supposedly died, but then they brought him back. He was not paralyzed, but he had had some issues with his legs, and he, but then eventually, like, he and Sue Ellen don't get back together because Sue Ellen then kind of has a thing sort of with Clayton for a while. And then Clayton gets with Miss Ellie and so nighttime soap opera stuff there. Anyway, I recognized him. And yeah. And he has a fair amount of screen time. I mean, more than once you see him. I don't remember if he has any lines, but I definitely recognized him. And I think that's it for the cast. Other than I wanted to mention some of the the actors who were considered before you do that, can I circle back to Richard Benjamin? Absolutely. People might recognize him from two other, not strictly genre movies, but horror comedies. Love at First Bite and Saturday the 14th. That's so I should have mentioned those. Good. Yeah. Good catch. So who could have been in this? So this is interesting. And I don't know what characters they would have played. I'm assuming we're talking Peter Martin and John Blaine. And I don't know if they would have been paired up with each other, but... James Kahn was was considered. He was this was he was pretty big at this time. He had just done The Godfather had come out. I'm trying to remember the timeline on The Godfather. I think it was 72, 72, 73. So yeah, so he would have been in The Godfather. He was in The Godfather, right? Yeah, he mm-hmm. was in Godfather. Yeah. 
So he was definitely an A-list actor around this time. Lee Majors, Western. Obviously, Lee Majors would have fit into this environment. So this would have been post-Big Valley. So 1973 was when this was filmed. He was doing Six Million Dollar Man. So this would have come out just when the, if he would have done this movie, it, I don't know. It it might have he might have missed the opportunity to play Six Million Dollar Man if he had committed to this. He was doing a show on TV called Owen Marshall, uh, Attorney at Law, where he was a supporting character. Who was the main? Was that Arthur Hiller? Yes, it was. Yes, interesting. Yes, we'll be talking about him yeah. shortly. Yeah, I could see Lee Majors in in one of these roles. I mean, would he would have fit? And <laughs> this would have taken the movie down a different path. William Shatner. Oh, gosh. I don't know that I could see William Shatner from this time period of William Shatner, because by early 70s, Shatner was already kind of, he was in this nebulous zone, Star Trek days behind him. He hadn't quite had his renaissance yet with the Star Trek movies and TJ Hooker and stuff. So he would have been wearing that really bad 70s toupee. That might have been pretty painful to watch. So I guess they were having a hard time trying to figure out who to pair up with William Shatner. And then the decision was made to go with two lesser actors because they wanted Yul Brenner to be the main focus. So Richard Benjamin hadn't done a lot at this point. James Brolin had done TV, but hadn't really you know, transferred to big screen roles. So they were definitely secondary to Yul Brenner. I have a question for you. You did a spoiler at the beginning. We know that one of them gets killed by the gunslinger and i yes. think you may have even said who did that surprise you at all i i really thought it was going to be the other way around uh, you kind of ex- i expected the other one to get shot you know i didn't expect the veteran that had been there before and was tougher and was telling him his friend how to do everything i didn't expect him to get shot and so i mentioned that it's for john blaine's second time james brolin's character second time there he really was not a great shot. I had seen some comments online, people commenting the same thing. It's like, how many times did it take him to shoot? And he actually hit the rattlesnake. Somebody who was there should have been a little more prepared. But he was also really kind of laid back with his with his approach. Because he's like, mm-hmm. yeah, I've been here before. Yeah, we're just going to go with the flow. And I think in the big term narrative, it makes more impact for the lesser to sort of become the hero and you know he has to face more obstacles to get there and that there's you know i'm sure there's a narrative purpose for that it it totally made sense because peter martin was the underdog right i mean he was immersing himself a little bit here's this moment of like you again you know and it's like i've got him this time and it was that lacks a days because they expected you know "Ah, this is just another thing and then that shock of him getting shot you're like, oh, that didn't turn out the way you expected. And then, of course, Peter Martin realizing that, oh, crap, you know, it's like this is different. And then we're beginning to realize, yeah, this is not this. Things are things are going to go south real quick here. Anything else to say about Westworld? It's never established in this movie, like what year it is. But we do get that in the next movie. At the beginning of of the next film, Future World, there's a reference to that that is taking place in 1985, and there's a reference that it had been two years. So this is set basically 10 years in the future. It's set in 1983. 
The computerized digital images on screen for the gunslinger's point of view was the first use of that in a feature film. Seems pretty dated by today's standards, but for 1973, that was kind of cutting edge. Yul Brenner's costume that he wore was actually, I'm guessing it's, I don't know if it was the same costume, but the same style that he wore as his character Chris in The Magnificent Seven. And apparently that was Yul Brenner who came up with that. He wanted to have the same look. This movie was filmed in 30 days. It was released five months later. It was actually kind of a quick recording time or filming schedule and then kind of rushed it out. Early 1973, this film was being filmed and put together and out in theaters before the end of the year. A really quick turnaround time. But we should mention, you know, Michael Crichton, it, besides doing Jurassic Park, had done other things. And some similar themes, Looker, Runaway. He also wrote The Andromeda Strain, which was a huge hit in the early 70s. The Terminal Man, which I've never seen, but I believe you have. Yes, I liked it. I did not know that Michael Crichton was, uh, that he had written uh, Twister. Apparently, he was inspired to write Westworld by the Pirates of the Caribbean animatronics. Seeing them, he kind of began to envision... And that overall idea continued into Jurassic Park, which then then there's actually a line about the Pirates of the Caribbean ride. I think it's Jeff Goldblum says, yeah, but the Pirates of the Caribbean don't try to kill you. That was kind of why it was thrown in there. Uh, Last but not least, shooting location. The Old West scene, they actually used the same sets from Blazing Saddles. This was the town in Blazing Saddles. Even more interesting, the Roman world scene was actually filmed at the Harold Lloyd Estates Gardens. Harold Lloyd, I've mentioned him on the show, but in case you don't know who he was, was really one of the big three silent comedians in in the silent film days, alongside Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton. And he had one of the first estates, like, you know, glorious Hollywood estates. He made a lot of money while making these silent films, and he maintained control over those films. He built this incredibly big, lush town, our our home, and he had died in 1971. So there was attempts after his death to make it into like a museum, actually using part of the estates for gatherings and parties, and, and in this case, actually used it for the set of the film. Yeah, I've seen pictures of it. So if you basically imagine what the scenes that we saw in, in Roman world, it just, you know, expanded even more. And he had a big, glorious estate. Unfortunately, it ended up having to be auctioned off in 1975. The mansion and part of the gardens that are actually seen in the movie actually still exist. But a lot of the rest of the land and part of, of, I think, the estates ended up getting auctioned off and uh, got divided into lots um, and actually is like a big housing development now kind of around it of luxurious homes that were you know made at the time. I believe the Harold Lloyd estates kind of passed you know, different hands along the ways. And, and I believe Barbara Rush at one time, the actress Barbara Rush actually owned the, uh, the estate. Incredibly fun movie. You watched this on Blu-ray? Yes, I did. Oddly, I owned Future World already, but didn't own Westworld. And that was a no-brainer. It was fairly cheap. I actually saw this on Blu-ray at Walmart 
in the last month or so. They had it actually on their rack out there. So you can get it really cheap. You can rent it on Amazon Prime for $3. A little easier to find than Future World. Future World has been a little bit harder to find. I suggest you add it to your collection. It's a fun flick. You'll want to go back and revisit it multiple times if you enjoy these kind of films. And I think you will. Yes, it's an iconic 1970s science fiction movie. It's, I would say, pre-Star Wars in those the first half of the 70s. We had movies like Rollerball, Stepford Wives, Omega Man, Silent Running, Coma, Capricorn One. It's a different type of sci-fi, right, than we had after Star Wars. So this is kind of a golden spot. Logan's Run, Soylent Green. Really kind of a fun science fiction era there. Star Wars changed everything, and all of a sudden it became about the big space epics, which are fun. Don't get me wrong. I love Star Wars, but I do think they were a little more creative uh, with science fiction back then. I think now there's this, when it comes to big movies, there's this, not all the time, but and certainly, though, post-Star Wars on into the 80s, that science fiction had to be about space epics and and there was a lot of carbon copy films that weren't anywhere near as good. Science fiction is one of those genres where, you know, you can make a low budget horror film and it looks fine. A low budget science fiction film can suffer because you got to have some technology sometimes. If, you're, if, if, if that's your type of science fiction film and you want ships and you want space battles and laser guns, you need more than $5.50, you know, in your, in your budget. And if that's all you're working with, it can really make your film look a lot cheaper. And I'm going to stir up some controversy. Ooh, is okay. Star Wars science fiction? I know everyone thinks it is, <laughs> but what's science about that? It's not the future, you know, it was a long time ago. It's action. It's space opera. There's a term called speculative fiction, oh. which I'll admit, I'd never even heard that term until a few years ago. But it, it is a term used for science fiction, but it's speculative fiction. And maybe not necessarily has to do with science, but it's speculative. But I think which is actually a pretty good term because it's saying, well, this takes place, you know, maybe now or in the future. And we're speculating what's going to happen. But it may not necessarily have anything to do with science, per se. It's a good point. And the term science fiction so many things can fall under that umbrella, and sometimes that name isn't always. Just because it takes place in space, you know, it doesn't have to be sci-fi. And if we do include it, I put it on the low end of sci-fi because there's like what I call hard sci-fi, really, that are thought-provoking things based on things that are happening today and the science and the technology. I've evolved into this stance. I probably, you know, in the video store days, sure, I mean... Where do you categorize Star Wars science fiction? Anyway, sorry, just wanted to throw that out there. Now, any words, last words about Westworld? I think we have covered it. It's two thumbs up for me. And as we look at the TV shows and, and look at the, the sequels and, and such, for me, Westworld is, is very much a ca in, in its own category. I think it, it, it definitely is a notch or two above what we're going to cover on, on the rest of this show. Well, what I've seen in regards to the 80 TV show and the, the sequel we're going to talk about, which in itself is a vastly different type of film than, than Westworld in a lot of ways. 
I can't speak to the HBO series. You will a little bit, but I think Westworld's very much in its own category and, and definitely is, is something a lot. That's a lot of fun. Definitely a classic. In 1972, Delos was open to the public. It consisted of three fantastic vacation resorts, Roman world, medieval world, and Westworld. It was a computerized paradise where nothing could go wrong. But something did. Now, in 1976, Delos is about to reopen. We have invested more than $1.5 billion to rebuild our equipment. Its problems have been corrected. We have replaced every circuit. Its technology has been perfected. The new Delos is not only the most fantastic resort in human history, it is also failsafe. And an incredible new world has been created. American International presents Future World, starring Peter Fonda, Blythe Danner, Arthur Hill, and Yul Brynner as the gunslinger. Program the blast-off sequence. Five, four, four three, three, two, two one. one. We have ignition. Welcome to Future World, the ultimate vacation resort. Fully programmed for your pleasure where, for only $1,200 per day, you can experience anything you can imagine. And a few things you can't. My night to your pawn. Prepare the Martian ski sequence for five guests and return power to grid three. Future world, where every day is an exciting new adventure, where your fantasies become reality, where highly sophisticated technician maintenance and servant series robots work together to make your wildest dreams come true take us both you can take risks face danger defy death all in complete comfort and total safety 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 you will never harm delos You will do what Delos instructs you to do. They're creating and programming duplicates of real people. You will destroy your original. I will destroy my original. Peter Fonda, Blythe Danner, Arthur Hill, and Ewell Brenner. Even those of us who create them can't tell the original from the duplicate. In Future World, if you can afford to go there, you're lucky. If you can't, you may be luckier than you think. Two years after the disaster of Westworld, Delos opens four new amusement parks. Spa World, Medieval World, Roman World, and Future World. Journalist Chuck Browning and Tracy Ballard visit during a publicity junket and discover a new nefarious plot hatching in the control rooms beneath the fantasy vacation. We are back. And before we get into Future World, Richard, it's 1976. Gosh, at the drive-in, we said if we weren't at the drive-in, what would we be doing? We can't do that now, but I, I still am going to remain curious about what were the other entertainment options at this time in 1976? Say it's July 1976. What else would you be doing? Well, if you were going to the movies... The number one movie at the box office for the week for the weekend of July 21st, 1976 was The Omen mm-hmm. for a fourth consecutive week out of an eventual five weeks. And do you know the movie that bumped The Omen from the top spot? 
76. Uh, not offhand. You're not ever going to guess it. <laughs> the Exorcist was re-released into theaters. Oh, wow. And it was the number one movie for one weekend, bumped The Omen from the top spot. Hmm. And of course, we've talked about The Omen here in a previous episode. We did the Omen trilogy back in episode, and then uh, I can't remember the episode. I haven't pulled up, but we did it. Good for you, calling out our old episodes. Yes, we've got a plethora that's available. If you were at home watching television, what were your options? And, you know, it's the summer, so back then there was a lot of repeats. That's the way things work. But uh, some interesting stuff. We had on ABC... There was the Happy Days second anniversary special. Didn't know that they did the second anniversary special of Happy Days, but it was on. And the Summer Olympics. So Summer Olympics was a big thing. I'm sure people were really, because back then that had been the only way for you to watch it. There was no streaming. There was no internet. There was none of that. So if you wanted to watch Summer Olympics, you had to turn to ABC. I'm going to say NBC for last because this is going to start a conversation. On CBS, we had The Jeffersons, uh, a TV show called Doc, which I don't recall, Doc. I think it was probably short-lived. And if shows only had a season or two, they disappeared. Mary Tyler Moore Show, The Bob Newhart Show, Mm. and Dinah Shore had a special called Dinah and Her New Best Friends. Mm. Now, over at NBC, there was an episode of Emergency and a movie. Now, I know why they played this movie, because this is what they did back then. I've never heard of this film, and it piqued my interest, and so I had to do a little bit of research into it. Is it it a TV movie or a theatrical movie? No, a theatrical movie from 1969, because again, back then, the networks would play movies, oftentimes... 10 years or older, sometimes they would play stuff. Can I take a guess? I mean, I don't, I won't know the movie, but is it going to be something with sports or the Olympics to try to counter the real? No. Oh, okay. No, no. I'm taking a guess as to why it played, uh, but I, it's a really good educated guess. So it's a movie called The Mad Woman of Shayu or Shayo. I think it's Shayo may be the, pronu- the correct pronunciation. Google told me it was pronounced Shayu. It's spelled C-H-A-I-L-L-O-T. It is a 1969 kind of pseudo-science fiction film starring, and this is, this is a cast, Katherine Hepburn, Yul Brenner, probably why it was chosen, Somebody by the name of Richard Chamberlain, whatever happened to that guy, <laughs> Donald Pleasance, and Danny FNK. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So I had to seek out the trailer. I saw the trailer on YouTube. It's a pretty faded out print of the trailer. These are one of these movies that has been totally slipping through the cracks. Warner Archive released it, so it is actually available. I really want to see this film. It apparently takes place in modern times, so 1969. But Catherine Hepburn is dressed like early 1900s, like she stepped right off of a production of Hello, Dolly. Yul Brenner has a very small part of the trailer, but he has a scene where he's drinking wine, and Catherine Hepburn is being very bombastic, and she's putting her like wrap over her head and knocks the wine glass out of his hand. 
Richard Chamberlain is kind of playing a almost like a spy. Like he's being it's it's like there's some type of anarchy going on. And Donald Pleasance is kind of being like Q and giving him this briefcase that has a bomb. And then there's like a computer room. And the, the scene with Danny Kay is he's kind of being on this trial, like something out of M. And Catherine Hepburn asks him in the trailer, what would you do if you if you had the oil? And he goes crazy and he says, I'd fight a war. You know, it's, it's you know, I read the description of it and it's like, it is basically everything I just said is what the description is. I don't know. I've I just I've never heard of this film. Have you heard of it before? I have not, but I had to look it up. And you left out some other interesting actors. Paul Henraid? Yes. From Casablanca? Yes. Oscar Homolka? Yes, Oscar. Oh, yes. Spoiler alert. Maybe I should watch this instead of another film. Perhaps. Perhaps. Charles Boyer? Wow. Yeah. Crazy cast. I've got to see it. It could be a totally horrible movie, but sometimes these films, there's some really good films that just slip through the cracks. Is it available somewhere? A Warner Archive released it. Oh, it's not like on YouTube or a I don't think so. I, I don't think that I was able to find it when I searched for it. A bit of a tangent there, but that's uh, a movie that really kind of blew me away. And that was Primetime TV on NBC, July 17th, 1976. Mm. Okay, and last but not least, the top 10 songs of the week ending Ooh. July 17th, 1976. Some interesting choices on this top 10. Bubbling under the top 10 at number 11, Letter In by John Travolta. Oh, gosh. <laughs> number 10, we had not who you would think 1976, but rock and roll music by the Beach Boys. Their first hit of the 1970s. Number nine, Silly Love Songs by Wings, featuring uh, that guy Paul McCartney doing his solo thing. But did you know what the number eight song was that week? This one surprised me. I Got to Get You Into My Life by The Beatles. Mm. Not only was he at number nine, he was number eight. This song was apparently on a Greatest Hits collection that came out in 1976. They released the song and it became a top 10 hit. Hmm. Number seven. All right. Now we're going into some cheesy 76 territory. Shop Around by the Captain and Tennille. <laughs> Number six, Love is Alive by Gary Wright. Number five, Moonlight Feels Right by Starbuck. Number four, I, I didn't go onto YouTube to play it. I'm drawing a blank on this one, but I know I've probably heard of it. More, more, more by the Andrea True Connection. Oh, yeah. Okay, I'm sure I've heard of it. Um, number three. How do you like it? How do you like it? More, more, more. Okay, thank you. I knew it. And people, let's vote. Would you rather have me sing Club or Richard now that I've shared my melodic talents? Oh, perhaps, yes. Perhaps we should flip that I'm not going to happen. <laughs> number three, I'll Be Good to You by the Brothers Johnson. That one I don't know. I'm drawing a blank on that one, but I know that I've probably heard it. Number two, Kiss and Say Goodbye by the Manhattan. Oh, that's a sad song. I can't sing it, but I, I have it in my head. Yeah. 
Uh, the number one, number one. So let me just kind of preface with saying that I, I looked at 1973 and I have to admit the top 10 from 73, I wasn't feeling it. So I went to 76 and I'm like, ah, much better. And this was the song that said, yeah, yeah, I got to do 1976. The number one song of the week ending July 17th, 1976 was Afternoon Delight by the Southland Vocal Band. Yes. (laughs) If you had asked me to guess, I had two choices. It was that and and I don't know when it came out, but it just seems like any time in the 70s you'd hear you light up my life. Either one, I would be very happy with. If anyone out there has never heard Afternoon Delight, clearly you're, Mm. you're younger or living under a rock. In 1976, that song played... Every hour on the hour on every radio station. It and you know, <laughs> if you think about it, it's a song about afternoon sex. And it was the number one song of the land, Afternoon Delight. Perfect opportunity to to throw in a little sound bite of afternoon. You, you bet. Don't think it's not gonna happen. Afternoon delight. Future World was written by two well-known writers, Mayo Simon and George Schneck, directed by Richard T. Heffron. It stars Peter Fonda, Blythe Danner, Arthur Hill, John P. Ryan, and Stuart Margolin. Running time 108 minutes, it was released, as we know, from our last segment, July 14, 1976, by, not MGM, but interestingly, American International Pictures, AIP. Richard, initial thoughts of Future World. Well, I guess that's probably why we've never gotten a Westworld Future World double feature release. Ah, true. Fortunately, the rights are held by different people. You mentioned two very well-known writers, Mayo Simon and George Schenck. Are you being serious or? I had never heard of them. Are you going to tell me there's a Star Trek connection or? <laughs> I would say, did you know something I did? Now, I recognize, obviously, some things that they did. I, You know, Mayo Simon did write... Maroon, I'm familiar with oh, that film. Yeah. Phase Four, which mm-hmm. is a, a great film. And he did do The Man from Atlantis TV series. I used to love that show back when it aired, and I haven't seen it since the 1970s. <laughs> now, George Shank, lots of TV stuff. He actually is producer of NCIS. So he kind of shifted gears and went down a different path. Uh, and Richard T. Heffron, lots of TV stuff. Definitely dealing with a, a different production level here now surprisingly this movie had a bigger budget obviously for some reasons that with some of the the set pieces for some reason this this film didn't feel as grand as westworld did and i think maybe it was westworld set out in the open you got this desert you know and this whole scene and you, and it, i felt connected to the fact that you've got westworld here and then there's medieval world and there's roman world you didn't get that feel that there was all these others because really this is a very different film. We're really not going into all these different worlds for the most part. We go into future world briefly, but most of this is set kind of behind the scenes. I would have first discovered this movie probably on HBO back in the eighties, I think was my first time seeing it. And I remember immediately being drawn because I, in fact, I, I do remember the ad in the HBO guide, of course, focusing on Yul Brenner as the gunslinger and the trailer for this, you know, certainly highlighted the fact that he's back and he's looking like the gunslinger. 
Pause for one second. Did you notice I did not mention his names when I was naming the cast? Yeah. I refuse to believe he should be a top billed star of this movie. He's not. Really deceptive advertising. I know that he got paid a pretty penny to do his thing. But, you know, my immediate thoughts on that are, I think this movie's too long. It, it clocks in about an hour, 50 minutes. I think easily should have had 20 minutes or so shaved off. It needed a 90 minute running time. I think it didn't have enough plot for that. And if I was given the editing things, I think the first thing I would have done would have been to take out that entire gunslinger sequence because he's not the gunslinger. It's a dream sequence. Spoiler alert. I'm saving you the, the, the heartache. Gunslinger's dead. And the only thing is that when Blythe Danner's character, Tracy Ballard, is going into her dream state and she's dreaming of a fantasy lover who just happens to be a gunslinger. So I'm like, why would she be dreaming of the gunslinger as her fantasy lover unless in the midst of her research on the fall of Westworld, she like, oh, hey, well, that killer robot over there is kind of hot. I can imagine, you know, that doesn't make any sense. Obviously, they wanted to, to try to sync this movie up with the original. And so let's get Yul Brenner back, pay him a pretty penny, give him this really weird dream sequence that has nothing to do with the rest of the movie. You could cut out that entire sequence and save yourself some time because it really does kind of even stop the narrative because her putting in a dream state is just like, it's a thing that they're experimenting on. It has nothing to do with the plot of the rest of the film. It basically allows Chuck Browning to, you know, Peter Fonda's character to have a moment to go off and, and run off on his own, which could have been done easily because they had already done that in the film. They could have come up with another plot device to make that happen. I know why they did it because they felt like probably the best part of the first movie and Yul Brenner, you know, was in need of money because he was in some financial distress in the, 70s, which is why he was doing films that he didn't really want to do. He didn't want to do Westworld. He didn't want to do The Ultimate Warrior, which I remember liking that movie, kind of a post-apocalyptic film. He was doing these films because it was an easy payday and he, he needed to pay the bills before he started making money again from The King and I when it had its you know revival. I enjoyed it more this time than I, I have in previous viewings. It is a very different film than Westworld. It's it's not as action-packed as, as Westworld is. It's really more of a drama almost behind the scenes. The science fiction plays a part, obviously, but I think it's toned down from the original. It, it's an odd film. I think I would have enjoyed the movie better had there been a different lead actor. Peter Fonda, for me, is just not a, a strong lead. I don't know. What are your thoughts? I liked it a heck of a lot more than you did. I agree. I'm not going to argue your points. I definitely agree with the dream sequence. I mean, it's a really cool science fiction concept of recording a dream and then playing it back. But you're right. What does that really have to do with anything that's going on? And I hated, hated, hated that Yul Brynner was in it. Yeah. That aside, though, well, and I should add on to that, though. You say it's not as much science fiction. There are, I think, a lot more unique science fiction ideas in this than West. I mean, Westworld was basically one failure of technology and yeah. what happens. This, there's a whole, a whole bunch of different things. And that'll come back again when we talk about the HBO 
series. That's two things I want you to remind me of, and I can't even remember what the first thing was now. But <laughs> you say that you don't get the sense of the different worlds. I, I did. Uh, one of the really cool additions that I liked was that rotating dome that had the models of the four. That's parts. true. Yeah, it was cool. And I didn't really say it in Westworld, but both movies spend quite a bit of time in other worlds, which is kind of funny since they're called Westworld and Future World. One of the things even with Westworld, I kind of didn't like those scenes as much. I didn't care about what was happening in those other worlds with those sub characters. You know, I wanted to see Westworld and here I want to see Future World. We get a fair amount in those other worlds. Peter Fonda, I sort of agree, but I really thought he and Blythe Danner had some good chemistry. They did. At least their characters, I liked them, the sort of competing journalists and the, you know, newspaper journalists kind of looking down on the TV journalist, and you know they're going to fall in love, or if not fall in love, at least go to bed. <laughs> so, and that, of course, happens. But I and I really like Blythe Danner, and, you know, she's the mother of uh, Gwyneth Paltrow. Sometimes you could see Gwyneth in her. And, yeah, you can. Yeah. yeah. So I enjoyed that. And I th- I just thought she was really good. I like her as an actress, even because not because she's Gwyneth's mother. So there were a lot of things I liked. Yeah, it's too long. I mean, I, like I say, I don't disagree with you, but I still liked it a lot. I think it's some of those science fiction ideas that I, I really like. And probably the best example is so. Spoiler alert, this is more about. Uh, I wouldn't call it cloning, but making replicas of people. And they want to do, this is kind of a silly reason, but they want to make replicas of world leaders and then, you know, advertise the fact that world leaders are coming there to generate more business. So at one point, Peter Fonda and Blythe Danner both have doubles, doppelgangers. The two Peter Fondas, that's sort of the big action climax is those two fighting each other. And the duplicate, they climb up on this tower and the duplicate says, remember, we're afraid of heights. I thought that was a really cool moment because, you know, this isn't just a physical looking duplicate. This is an exact duplicate that knows your thoughts and memories. Yeah. And I really liked that. And I liked that ending, too. I thought that it was very exciting. And yeah, I liked it. And I have a little bit of a nostalgic attachment to this, not because of when I saw it, but the Clark, the engineer robot with the engineer's hat and no face. Yeah, yeah. He was on the cover of an issue of Famous Monsters of Filmland. I remember that, yeah. I remember that, and I tie that to the movie and, of course, the hype for that. No, I think I I did like that that sequence between uh, the uh, the real Chuck and and the robot or android Chuck. And Peter Fonda, he's he's one of those actors where I think, you know, sometimes I've seen him in things and it's like, I think he's good. Like, I thought he was good in Race with the Devil. I think the way that movie played out. And I do agree with you that he, he there was a chemistry between him and Blythe Danner at, that did play out in the film. I think like in the, in the for me in, in the, the, the chase sequence, though, for some reason, I... I I just I felt like maybe another actor would have brought something different to that particular thing. So I like I said, it's been a long time since I've seen Future World. Now you've got a, a Blu-ray copy of it. So yeah, it did get a Blu-ray release. It's kind of hard to find though on Blu-ray now. I know I don't know if it's out of print. Like every time I was looking for it on Amazon, it was a non 
Region A Blu-ray. I, I do like it better now than the last time I've seen it. Interestingly enough, Carla liked this better than Westworld because she's not a big Western fan. She was definitely getting a Terminator vibe once I once I mentioned that to her. She's like, "Yep, I can see it," and she's not a Terminator fan. So when we got to West or Future World, she definitely enjoyed it a lot better, more than I did actually. So it's not that I didn't enjoy it. It's just there was just I think just some things about the movie that I felt could have been a little better, but it wasn't enough that it was. I, I know that in previous times I've seen it, I really didn't care for it. So I definitely like it better now. And maybe this is one of those films that I just, the more I watch it, the more I find something in it. But I know pretty much universally is that, you know, most people are not fans of Future World. It had a bigger budget, but did not do as well at the box office as, as Westworld. And I think a lot of that is because it, it's a, it is a very different film. I mean, these 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 are two, two different types of, of science fiction films, much like if you see like, Alien and Aliens, those are two very different science fiction films. You get one sci-fi horror, one sci-fi adventure. There's more action in Aliens than there is in Alien. And there was definitely a, an intriguing idea and a good story going on here. You did mention that you do get the feel for the other worlds. And I will say that you know, we do get glimpses of, of the other worlds in this one. And, you know, Future World, of course, is the main is the main one. And they did, they went to NASA and, and did some scenes and, and I mean, it's impressive. I mean, it, it's, that's where I think probably a lot of their, their budget went to the future world bar. Interestingly enough was Logan's room from Logan's run. They just, they took that room and redressed it, which I thought was interesting because Logan's run was an MGM film, but this wasn't an MGM film. I just breezed through it so I don't recall all the fine details, but did you get the development of this movie in relation to Westworld and why it was AIP and not MGM? And basically, of course, people were interested in making a um, sequel because Westworld was such a hit and was in development a little while. Like I remember the producer or whoever was kind of spearheading it. MGM decided they only wanted to make one science fiction film for that year, and that was Logan's Run. So the producer then was able to take the rights and go to AIP and, and get it made. So that's high, very high level, but there was something there, you know, that delayed it. It is funny, though. Yeah, like We're only doing one science fiction movie this year. It's like that's a, kind of a crazy concept that wouldn't wouldn't be today. This movie does establish the timeline, which I kind of talked about when we did Westworld, is that at the beginning, you've got the guy is winning his, his he won the, the game show, and you've got a, the game show host played by Alan Ludden, who is, those of us of our generation, recognize him. He was on Password Plus, Card Sharks. He also played in a Penguin episode of Batman. So we have a lot of Batman references on this one. And he was Betty White's husband. Yes, the check that he presents some dates in 1985. And then when we know that it's been two years, that's how we, we know the timeline. And I'm going to push back a little when you say that it, I, I think it's more connected to Westworld maybe than we're leading people to believe. We learn more about the details from the disaster at Westworld. 50 guests were killed, 95 staff members were killed or wounded. Like you said, we learned the date. The cost has gone up a little bit. It's now $1,200 a day to go. It's got that connection. Plus, if you think about... Let's not spoil it quite yet, but the sort of big reveal or surprise is very much a natural 
progression from what happened in Westworld, I feel. It, it is. So we have this big disaster that happens in Westworld. And so now we're, they're picking up the pieces and they're reopening after two, after two years. Yes. And who's picking up the pieces? We learned. Are, are we going to spoil it? I'd go ahead. I'd, spoiler alert. Yeah. In Westworld, we we knew that some of the the androids had created other androids and the humans didn't know how to control them. Well, here they have basically taken over. I mean, they are the ones that have, are doing this. And Arthur Hiller, the sort of head of publicity or whatever that's trying to attract these journalists to come sort of for this press junket, is one of them too. Now, having seen this before, it's hard in a movie like this to sort of forget the big spoiler. So how do you feel about that when it's the way that it's revealed that he is one of the androids also? Were you surprised? Did you see it coming? I will say I was surprised. Now, I've seen the film before, but I had forgotten, you know, so uh, because, it, again, previous viewings just didn't stick with me. And it had been a, quite a while. I thought it was good. And it is a natural progression. And it does kind of, you know, explain some things. And I think really it, it a lot of the ideas actually in Future World are carried over into the Beyond Westworld TV series. Same with um, HBO. So, um, so there's definitely... You know, future will kind of laid that groundwork for what's going on, what really happened. And going back to the idea of like the you get a little bit of the other worlds, we, we don't get a lot and probably less than we got in Westworld, because you're right, because we had the whole medieval world and there was the big fight, you know, and then there was a little less with the Roman world here. There is a Roman world sequence, if I remember, is it, I think that was the Roman world sequence. Or spa world, I don't know. I'm trying to remember whether the two characters are imagining that they're younger. Mm, yes, I guess it was medieval world. John Fujioka playing the character of Mister Takaguchi. He was, of course, character actor was in lots of different things, but I know him from the Six Million Dollar Man. He played the character of Kuroda. He was in the last Kamikaze. He was the World War II soldier who got left in the jungles and then he came back in the wolf boy episode he's got a small part where he gets to have a little sword battle and that was fun i think that the ideas they laid here i think were solid and i think a good natural progression i think with the gunslinger and this i was gonna mention this earlier and i just remembered it there's conjecture about why the gunslinger appeared now you're really going a deep dive implication and it is certainly nothing that the original writers intended, but the idea that the gunslinger or the robot was, was becoming sentient and self-aware would go in line with the storyline, right? The robots taking over. So what if the gunslingers conscience was still in the computer system? And so when she's, plugged in and begins dreaming it's not so much from her it's the gunslinger coming into her dream that would make a lot more sense but they don't say any of that in the movie and it was not the intent from the writers but it's people who have picked up and said well i think this is this and i'm like well okay this is a bit of fan fiction going on here but it works and it, it actually would explain why the gunslinger pops up out of nowhere and that would kind of tie in with the rest of the of the movie, I think. But 
And that's another one of those sci-fi ideas that, yeah, I didn't realize that, but that's just another one to put to my list. And you mentioned Spa World. That's also a sci-fi idea. They don't change appearance. They're old. I can't remember how they worded it, but when they were to look into the pool of water, there was something manipulation going on there electronically that they would see a reflection of themselves. And, and this movie did do another first. This was the first film to use 3D CGI. And it was very brief, but it was the moment where the robots kind of materialize and kind of come to life, I guess, in that one sequence. It's very brief, but kind of cool that, you know, these movies are doing some firsts in films, obviously very early version of CGI, but still cool that it that it, it goes in the record books as being the first to do that. And that's that's pretty darn cool. So. Yeah, and it's cool that the pair of them both have that sort of first. I will say another first that this film did, and perhaps this kind of set the the stage for where we are now. I'm being a pain when I say this, but this was the first film sold to China after Jimmy Carter established relations with China. This is the first movie they get from us and they see Future World. And I'm like, that, that you know, I'm joking, of course, but odd choice that that's the first film we send them. Really? There's nothing else in 1976 that we thought that they might have enjoyed a little better than Future World? And look where we are now. The the Chinese decided, well, we're going to take over the world. Maybe they're androids. Maybe. Like Westworld, I'm very interested in sort of the human angle of it. I guess there's really no humans. Well, there's the one human that works at uh, at Delos, but all of the, the people in the control room are, you know, as we said, androids. But they talk a little bit about that by removing the human aspect. They've removed one source of errors. They've been able to eliminate that. So that's kind of a cool idea to chew on. And then also they explain that like human beings are very irrational and unstable. If left alone, they will destroy the world by the end of the decade. A couple of things I don't like. And, and this is funny because it's got all these lofty ideas. And yeah, maybe the it's not focused and the execution isn't great. But then there's these little details that are just drove me crazy. For example, at the beginning, they're showing footage from the disaster at Westworld, which are just scenes from Westworld. And you think if there was even if there was a news crew there or even cameras positioned to take video, they're not going to look like no. the scenes from the movie <laughs> that I know that's petty, but that drove me crazy. Another point where Blythe Danner and Peter Fonda are looking around and they don't really know what they are. And they come to this big door in this control panel with a bunch of buttons and they just start pushing buttons or Peter Fonda does. And she, you know, asks him about it and he goes, oh, I have an instinct about these things. I mean, that's just like a, a line written to hastily explain stupid behavior. Yes. Yeah. So I didn't really like that. Also, the guns they were using within Westworld and the bowels of Westworld when they were fighting and stuff were like futuristic yeah. Guns, right? And that didn't make sense no. unless from the aspect of in 1985, when this took place in 1976, we would have thought guns would look like that because they weren't part of the fantasy worlds. They were just part of the real world. Seemingly standard guns. So, yeah, I guess that goes with, well, we're nine years in the future, 10 years in the future. This is what we're going to have now and flying cars. And yeah, kind of. Now, the one way that I think it did kind of predict the future is when they get in the rocket and they simulate taking off. That is 
to me exactly like one of these motion rides like at Disney World or something. Yeah. Where you've got a screen in front of you with movie and then it, it rocks and shakes you and and drops you. So that was sort of, well, I don't know when those rides were developed, but that's an idea here that I imagine predated those actual rides. I don't think motion rides were really a thing in the 70s, 80s, maybe 90s for sure. I wonder if either of those writers were comic book or Superman fans. There's a couple references to Superman, the the game show winner who uh, and let's talk about him. What did you think of him? He was kind of annoying, but kind of funny. So he won the game show and he his prize. He gets to go to Delos and um, he's a cocky. He shoves that in everyone's face that he's the winner and he's not really a likable guy. And no. so he's kind of annoying. But yet, I don't, I, I don't know, he kind of had his purpose. He's obsessed with what's it going to be like to sleep with an android or a robot. He has two options and he's like, can't choose which one. And they say, well, why not both of us? And he says, I'm no Superman. Okay, that's maybe not the Superman, a super new word man. But Clark that we mentioned earlier, the engineer without the face, he was purposely named Clark after Clark Kent because he's a man of steel. I don't know. I just wondered if. It was coincidence or if somebody like purposely put in those references. Superman was definitely in the in the culture, you know, always has been. I mean, those are really the notes I had. I think I shared everything. What else do you have? Uh, surely you've got some stuff on the cast. I do. Peter Fonda, talked to him, Chuck Browning, easy writer, probably the most famous thing that he's remembered for. Also in Spirits of the Dead, very odd late 60s Poe inspired anthology where Peter Fonda plays his sister's brother. And I mean, Jane Fonda is his sister and he plays like brother and sister. It's bizarre. Race of the Devil, which we've covered here on the show as well, which was fun. Escape from LA, which is nowhere near as good as Escape from New York, but has its moments. And we did lose him not too long ago. He died in 2019 at the age of 79. Blythe Danner, Character actress in a wide assortment of films. Recently, people probably remember her for the Meet the Parents films. She played the mother, one of the mothers in that. She was in Meet the Parents, Meet the Fockers, and Little Fockers. Arthur Hill played the uh, character of Duffy. Of course, he was in Andromeda Strain. We had mentioned previously he was the lead in Owen Marshall, Counselor at Law, which did feature Lee Majors, so it played a big part in him getting cast for a $6 million man. And this is a stretch, but I'll say it, a guest star on the show was William Shatner from Star Trek. He was also the narrator, oddly enough, in Something Wicked This Way Comes. Last but not least, of course, we've mentioned Yul Brenner and John Fujioka. I got to mention Stuart Margolin, who played the character of Harry Fans of our age will remember him from the character of Angel Martin from the Rockford Files. Character actor in a lot of things, that's probably one of the most popular things that he is remembered for to this day. I have one to add. Okay. John P. Ryan. I thought at first he was going to be just a passing person, but he had ended up having it. He was sort of who you thought was going to be the real bad guy before you learned everyone was the real bad guy. He's from It's Alive and It Lives Again. Ah, okay. I recognized him. That's all that I had. I didn't have as much tidbits on this one, not as much stuff out there, uh, other than it didn't do real well in the box office. And so this was kind of the end of the franchise as far as a film go. 
But obviously the ideas presented in this film did play a part in the television show that we're going to talk about here in a second. You know, even though I didn't like it as much as Westworld, I still say it, it's worth checking out if you go into it, the mindset that it is a little different, but it is very much a sequel and it does kind of carry some themes. It just takes it into a slightly different direction. Most people will find at least something to enjoy about it. Maybe not as much as the first, but you might enjoy it more like my wife or, you know, Jeff, you certainly enjoy it more than I did. Yeah. Uh, Dennis Beresford, Carla and I are going to get together and we're going to talk about future work. <laughs> It began with Westworld. Three, two, one, activate now. A futuristic playground where people could act out their fantasies with robots so sophisticated it was impossible to tell them from humans. Your move. Suddenly, the robots changed, turned into the deadly servants of their creator, Simon Quaid, who took them beyond Westworld. I have an impregnable army of loyal and unquestioning troops. I've placed robots all over the world. He wants it all. He has one heck of a good chance of getting it with those robots. Delos, builders of Westworld, must stop Quaid. Assigned is security chief John Moore and Special Agent Pam Williams. Let's face it, John, it's your wits against Quaid's machines. The ideas that were presented in Future World were carried on into the first of two television shows. So, and it sounds like possibly both shows. So not going to do a lot of time on this, but we need to mention that in 1980, uh, I believe it was CBS, I think, did Beyond Westworld. Yes. And it is a, basically ignores Future World and it's a sequel to the original Westworld. It was a um, standard episodic format that picked up on the idea that robots are taking over the world. The idea is that the character of Simon Quaid, played by actor James Wainwright, was one of the creators. He did not like that they were being used for entertainment, and he comes up with the scheme that they should be used to kind of take over because mankind is, is kind of not worthy, and he has envisioning that he's going to, he's a megalomaniac, he's going to take over the world, essentially, uh, and his robots are going to do it by replacing real life people, you know, key figures, governors, and the like. The premise, of course, is that Simon Quaid, they, Delos is aware that Simon Quaid has done this, and but they don't know where he's at. They're trying to find him. And so now one of, I think he was like head of security. I'm trying to remember his exact role, but the lead for the show is John Moore, played by actor Jim McCullen, who did lots of TV, Six Million Dollar Man, Bionic Woman, and Dallas. He's basically in charge of trying to find Simon Quaid. It only lasted five episodes, and essentially each week, Simon Quaid comes up with another mad plot, and by the end of the episode, they have defeated the robot. Who are the heroes? Who is battling Simon Quaid? The thing is, it's Delos is after Simon Quaid, because Simon Quaid basically ruined their idea, and they're trying to stop Simon Quaid from taking over the world. So John Moore... I, again, he was like head of security or something at Dallas. I can't remember. And the pilot, 
he was paired up with the character known as Laura Garvey, who was also working for Delos, played by actress Judith Chapman. Did lots of TV, lots of soap operas. I remember her from the Galactica 1980 episode, Return of Starbuck. Probably the only good episode of that short-lived series. Now, she's replaced in episode two and for the remainder of the short run by actress Connie Selica, who plays a new character called Pamela Williams, who I'm not sure that Pamela worked for Delos. I don't think she did, but she worked for Simon Quaid at one time. And she's brought back into it to help John go after Simon. Now, Pamela and John used to be an item. And so there and there was admittedly a better on-screen chemistry between the two. So I think that's probably why there really was nothing between Jim McMullen and Judith Chapman in that pilot, which is probably why she didn't get. Simon Quaid has different sidekicks who help him in the five episodes. And the pilot episode, the sidekick is played by, and I had it and where it went, it just disappeared. This sounds like a show while you're looking that the human hero would have a good robot buddy or counterpart. Is that the case? <laughs> Not really. Um, there was a, a a female robot who like worked in the office that showed up for a few times, but no, not really. He they do work with a character named Joseph Oppenheimer, played by William Jordan, who is a character actor who is kind of like he's the office guy, and he sends them out in the field to do the stuff. Interestingly enough, in his office is a poster for Westworld, but it's actually one of the movie posters. You can actually just barely make out Richard Benjamin and uh, <laughs> James Brolin. Okay, Stuart Moss was the actor who played the character of Foley in the pilot episode. Stuart Moss, Star Trek Connection, appeared in two episodes of Star Trek, The Naked Time and My By Any Other Name. And then... In episodes two and three, the character of Foley is played by actor Seven Darden, who was in Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, Battle for the Planet of the Apes, Six Million Dollar Man. He, he was the head of the aliens in the, the Bigfoot episodes. And then in episodes four and five, the assistant becomes Patrick, played by Russell Johnson, best known as the professor from Gilligan's Island. Sci-fi monster fans will remember him from the movies Attack of the Crab Monsters and This Island Earth. A lot of guest stars pop up in the course of the five episodes. Uh, familiar names, Christopher Connolly, might not know the name, you'll know the face. Denny Miller popped up in a lot of things. Actor Bobby Van, who I remember from Battlestar Galactica, was in a couple of episodes. I uh, can never say this name, but Rene Aubergenois. Odo from Deep Space Nine, uh, Michael Pataki, who played a Klingon in Star Trek The Trouble with Tribbles, Martin Coe from the Karate Kid film series, Monte Markham, who was the $7 million man, um, Hari Rhodes, and George Takei, a.k.a. Mr. Sulu. Now, sad thing is, this is 1980, and Star Trek hadn't quite, it was just on the verge of the actors were starting to get back in the mainstream again after kind of being sidelined in the 70s. George Takei plays a scientist working for the bad guy. And he's got two scenes. One scene he doesn't even speak, and the other scene he finally does speak. Poor George, he didn't even get opening guest star credits. He was relegated to the end credits. So definitely, I think a few years down the road, that never would have happened. But 1980, George Takei was just another actor from an old TV show. 
but a lot of familiar faces. And here's a cool one. There is a dance hall girl that is seen in the pilot episode. This also pulls stock footage from the original. Again, we see the stagecoach. You can actually kind of make out Richard Benjamin and James Brolin. And the stock footage ends up being used in the opening credits. There is a scene in the, in the pilot episode where they actually, this is, happens like right after Westworld. And they're going to the, the street and actually encounter the gunslinger. Now, it's played a little different. The gunslinger apparently didn't, you know, get destroyed. The gunslinger does get activated. It doesn't look like Yul Brenner, but still wearing the, the black outfit. And there is a pretty cool chilling scene in the first episode where John Moore and a pilot, and Laura Garvey, are in Westworld. And Simon Quaid always has cameras everywhere. He knows everything. They reactivate the gunslinger who has like five minutes of battery left. And then John Moore defeats the gunslinger by putting him in water. And then Simon Quaid activates all the robots. And so there's this scene where they're running to the helicopter. The robots are chasing him, kind of like the Star Trek episode, Return of the Archons, where everyone's kind of chasing him in that episode with Landrew. Uh, they get on the helicopter and barely get away. And then the rest of the show is all about them battling Simon Quaid's latest plot. Episode five actually kind of dabbled with the idea of implanting things into humans and controlling humans rather than actually replacing them with lookalikes, but it doesn't quite work well. And he decides to abandon that and go back to his idea of using robots. Sadly, the show really got the short end of the, uh, of, of the stick because episodes one, two, and three aired on March 5th, 12th, and 19th. It gets canceled. Two episodes in the can Episode four doesn't air until August 23rd. Episode five doesn't air until January 7th, 1981. Literally, hey, we have an hour. We, they just kind of dumped it. But this show actually won primetime Emmys. It won a primetime Emmy for Outstanding Achievement in Makeup and Outstanding Art Direction for a Series. And I forgot to mention the one actress. I, I got sidetracked. The Dancehall Girl, and she's actually gets featured in the opening credits for the remaining of the series, the dance hall girl is played by Cassandra Peterson, a.k.a. Elvira. Oh, wow. You got to know what she looked like at the time. She was younger and looked a little different, but she is recognizable once you catch who she is. And again, she's at the opening credits for all remaining four episodes of the five episode run. I remember watching this show when it was originally on, at least the, the pilot episode, I do remember. I think I watched the next couple of episodes, then it got canceled and I never saw it again. Because it's only five episodes long, it disappears, right? There's nowhere to air just five episodes of a show. For a long time, you couldn't find it anywhere. But the show did get released on DVD from, and I believe it's Warner Archive again. You can find the complete series on DVD for less than 25 not bad, I guess, for five episodes. It's a little pricey, I think. You can also rent the episodes for $2 per episode on Amazon or $9 for the entire series. And the pilot episode is an extra feature on the Westworld Blu-ray. You know what? We enjoyed it. I think the show had promise, but it was rep repetitive. You know, it's the plot of the week. 
And it's Simon Quaid wanting to take over the world. How do you compare it to other sci-fi movies transferred to TV like Planet of the Apes, Logan's Run? Very similar. Same pattern? Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, Planet of the Apes was the story of the week, right? You know, once Galen and uh, was it Burke and Verdon, they they go off and, you know, they encounter different people every week. Logan's Run had the same premise. Once once it, you get away from the original movie, then they're encountering different people every week. Kind of the same thing. They would have been, Simon Quaid was the perennial bad guy, but they were encountering different humans every week that were wrapped up in the latest plot of Simon Quaid. And by the end of the episode, they beat the robots and Simon Quaid is, you know, you know, and then the next week he's got another plot. Three episodes is hardly enough time to really get a feel. I think this show might've had a chance if it had come out maybe 10 years later and when first run syndicated shows were all the rage. I don't know if I ever saw it or not. I do not remember. Do you know where you are? I'm in a dream. That's right, Dolores. You're in a dream. Have you ever questioned the nature of your reality? Welcome to Westworld. No orientation. No guidebook. All our hosts are here for you. In this world, you can be whoever you want. Are you real? Well, if you can't tell, does it matter? Oh, no! This behavior, we're miles beyond the glitch here. What are your drives? To meet my maker. terrified. I feel spaces opening up inside of me. Like a building with rooms I've never explored. I think there may be something wrong with this world. Something hiding underneath. These violent delights have violent ends. Well, I have been re- assigned the responsibility of talking about the new Westworld series, which launched on October 2nd, 2016 on HBO. And this is going to be the most pitiful explanation of all. Yes, I've watched every episode, but this is a show I have a very hard time understanding, knowing what's going on from one minute to the next, one season to the next. So if we have any listeners or any club members that watch it and would like to add and embellish my description, please call and and leave feedback. So it takes a lot of plot points from both movies. And it stars Anthony Hopkins in the first season and maybe part of the second. He does not last through the series. We think he is the mastermind, the person who has developed the technology and, and set up the new Westworld. Ed Harris is in it. He's comparable to the gunslinger. The thing about this show is it it starts out kind of like the movie. There's people that come to the amusement park. But what permeates the show is you don't know who's real and who's not. And you later on learn that consciousness 
of people is transferred to other people. And their big thing is that they recreate the androids that die you know, looking the same and put their consciousness back in. So a person can reappear later in other seasons. It's just very, very confusing to me. There's a like a silver sphere that's inside their heads and that's what they can physically remove and put into another body, you know, to carry the consciousness. It's in season four right now. It just ended and it has shifted to still the concept of, of artificial intelligence taking over, but they've generated this tower or created this tower that generates a signal that manipulates, controls people. I'm never really clear. Are they controlling humans or are they just controlling a city that's populated by other artificial intelligence? And then Evan Rachel Wood, who's a star, who started out in the very first one as one of the hosts at Westworld, has now evolved. And she's actually writing the programming that's causing all of this, but she doesn't know it. She's not aware of it. When she becomes aware of it, she can actually stop what's happening. I don't know if you get the gist. It's, it's very complicated. That's all I know about it. I will say it's beautiful and it has great music and there's great stars in it. The moments that I remember of it are from that first season because it is so much like the movie. And earlier when I said remind me of the like flipping the switch and, and turning it off and starting it, you mentioned using stock footage. One of the concepts I liked is that these are not, not so much like live events that are happening. They're sort of stories that have been pre-imagined or pre-written. So when they reset... They're always starting at the beginning. The train is always coming in the same way. There's always the same people crossing the street at the exact same time. And later on, that becomes kind of funny because characters that are coming back and have revisited, like know when to stop because this person is going to walk in front of them because it's happened before. It is hard science fiction, if anything is, with these concepts and the way that they're playing out. I don't know how much it's got left in it. Each season has been different, so it seems like they're going to have to go somewhere else with it. I haven't heard if there's going to be a season five. Hasn't there been some like long gaps between seasons? I don't know. There must have been, because if this was only season four and it started in 16, yeah, it's not one a year. Some stars kind of come and go. James Marsden was very big at the beginning. He wasn't, and he returned in season four. Oh, gosh. What's his name? Jesse from Breaking Bad. Aaron Paul. He joined maybe last in the second or third season. And he did have an interesting arc this time because he's fighting against the artificial intelligence with one of the women that's from the original Westworld. And he has a little girl that he leaves at home to go do this fighting. And there's a whole thing of him trying to get back to his daughter and her trying to remember. Well, spoiler alert. We learn that he is artificial intelligence. That seems to be like the big spoiler in these movies. Someone you don't think is. And it is years later. So when he gets reunited with his daughter, she's grown up. Ah. I really like that part. That's either I'm adjusting to it or it's getting easier to understand because that happened in season four and I could follow that pretty well. Okay. Anyway, I do recommend it even if only for you to explain to me what's happening. But I, I'm not going to give up. I'm bound to determine 
you know, maybe I started out not paying full attention, maybe looking on my phone or something, but it was not long before I devoted my time and attention to it so that I could try to understand it. Sometimes with the shows like that, if doing a binge watch is actually beneficial. Same with me with Game of Thrones. And it's a different way. It was just so big and sprawling and so many characters, I couldn't remember for one episode. But if I missed a, and watched two or three in a row, it made much more sense to me. Well, Rich, we survived our vacation at Delos in the different worlds. Let's plot our exit strategy back into going home in the real world, take a little break and come back and do new business. What is your name? Uh, Gardner Lewis. Just got back from Westworld. Tell us how you liked it, Mr. Lewis. When you played cowboys and Indians as a kid, you'd point your fingers and go bang, bang, and the other kid would lie down and pretend dead. Well, Westworld is the same thing, only it's for real. I, I shot six people. Well, uh, they weren't real people. What Mr. Lewis means is he shot six robots, scientifically programmed to look, act, talk, and even bleed, just like humans do. Now, isn't that right? Well, they may have been robots. I mean, uh, I think they were robots. At I mean, I, I know they were robots. Yes, the robots of Westworld are there to serve you and to give you the most unique vacation experience of your life. Thank you, sir. Welcome back. This is odd. Last episode, we I went into a uh, just shy of a rant about no movies coming out anymore on home video. And we got a bunch this month, which is also odd because it seems like in October they don't really. And this year there are. Now, some of these are stretches. We're not talking about, you know, fantastic movies. But let's start out. Let's not go into our discussion. We did this before, but the Munsters the 2022 Rob Zombie, I just wanted to mention, is coming out September 27th. We talked about how it was going to be streaming at the same time in theaters. I did not realize it's also going to be on Blu-ray and DVD on September 27th. Okay, then getting into October 11th, our Snake and Old Lace from 1944, the classic, is coming out. They're getting the Criterion treatment. I think I mentioned these movies last time. The Horrible Sexy Vampire, Love Brides of the Blood Mummy, and The Other Side of the Mirror. Those are all coming, Mondo Macabro. But I did not mention Golden Girl from 1979 with Susan Anton. That's coming out October 11th from Kino Lorber. Sort of a, I guess it would be post-Bionic Woman, right? Or simultaneous in 79? Post. Yeah. I've never seen it, but I get the impression she's like a sort of a bionic woman that Ah, okay. Have you ever seen, y'all seen it? Nope, never have. October 18th, Arrow has a batch of movies for us. Lady Morgan's Vengeance from 1965. The Blancheville Monster from 1963. The Third Eye from 1966. And The Witch from 1966. Heard of any of those? The Blancheville Monster I have. Lady Morgan's Vengeance is on my watch list for some reason. I don't know why. That's the one I had heard of. All right. October 25th, we get some of our oddities from Severin. These are ones that I am going to read you the synopsis because they sound so interesting. Footprints from 1975. A woman is tormented by strange dreams of astronauts on the moon. She visits a deserted, deserted seaside town whose inhabitants know her, although she does not know them. Then one called Identikit. It's also known as The Driver's Seat from 1974, starring Elizabeth Taylor. Oh. A mentally disturbed spinster experiences a series of bizarre encounters in Rome as she searches for someone she feels she'll know when she finds him. 
And then here's a movie that IMDb, you can't even find on IMDb. A little bit later, 1986, called I Like Bats. <laughs> you know of that? I, I do not. I'm going to stop you real quick. There's a couple of other things coming out from several. What I miss. Well, and I've got it. They're coming out October 25th. If you pre-order, you will probably get them sooner from Severin. So there's the Dracula versus Frankenstein, which I think we may have mentioned last month, but that is coming out October 25th on Blue. And it has Brain of Blood as an extra on it. So really, you're getting two movies for the price of one. And then one that I'm really interested in from Severin is Tales to Keep You Awake. It sounds like it's a Spanish anthology series that spans like a pretty long period of time it sounds like it was originally in the 60s and then it had a 70s special and then it came back again in the 80s because the trailer has stuff that clearly it's black and white and then from the 60s so that would place it in the 60s but then there's some color footage that looks very 70s and then some color footage that looks kind of from the 80s i've never heard of this the trailer looks really interesting I don't do blind buys very often, but I'm sold on the trailer for this. I'm like, I'm beyond intrigued. This is one of those, never heard of it, but they're going to get my money. I want that to watch for the Halloween season. And then I think it's coming out in, I, I might be jumping the gun if this is on your list, but there's something from Mondo Macabro. They've got several things. I've got one that's just on my radar. There were several releases they've got coming out. They did their limited edition sale this past week. So you could get the exclusive covers and, and get the red cases. But House of Terrors, it's a it's a Japanese film from the 1960s that looks really kind of terrifying and interesting. But it's a the trailer is a an Italian trailer for a Japanese movie that's inspired by the Gothic, European Gothic films. It's a deep dive for Mondo, but again, they sold me on the trailer, so that, that'll be a blind buy. I did not get in on the limited edition sale this week. It might not be coming out until after October, its official release. Probably not. I'm probably jumping the gun on that. The more I'm thinking about it, Mondo does things. If, it, if they're just doing their limited sale... It's probably going to be a little bit later down the road, maybe November. Well, never fails when I don't ask you if you have anything you do. And when I remember to ask you, did I miss anything? You don't have anything. The only other thing that's on my radar is for December. And that's Santo versus the Evil Brain and Santo versus the Infernal Men, the two first two films. Currently available for pre-order from Indicator which is a European title, but they do make some region-free Blu-rays, and this is a region-free Blu-ray. Shudder, I want to call out. First of all, just really briefly, every Friday it seems like they've been putting in a movie, and there have been some terrific movies. The Innocence, which I recommended to you and I think you liked. Oh, I loved it. I didn't like it as much, but yeah. Watcher. Anyway, these are modern movies, but really, man, some good stuff is coming out. They have a new series that started, well on the 7th, and I believe every Wednesday an episode comes out, the 101 scariest horror movie moments of all time. And it's very impressive so far with the one episode I've watched. It's a real variety of movies. It's not all just current stuff. They even go back and consider a scene from The Wolfman, the original, one of the scariest scenes. There's classics and new ones mixed in. I'm really looking forward to where that's going. So I highly recommend that. 
haven't seen it yet, but on September 30th, they have another series that's starting called Queer for Fear about, I, I guess, horror movies with gay content or context or something. I'm very interested in that. And then this, I like, I really had to do a double take. Dario Argento has a new movie coming out. It's called Dark Glasses. It premieres on Shutter October 13th. I look to see, oh, is this a forgotten lost film? You know, but no, it is a new movie. And I'm just very eager. His last couple of movies are, you know, I don't think are particularly well liked. I don't really don't know what to expect. That'll be interesting. Birthdays, I've just got three quickies, three lovely women from the world of horror. September 18th, 1922, Grayson Hall. She played Dr. Hoffman on Dark Shadows. September 18th, 1944, Rest in Peace, Veronica Carlson. And September 26, 1941, another hammer glamour, Martine Beswick. Happy birthday, past and present to those lovely women. Anniversaries on September 15th, 1976, Dracula and Son came out. I mentioned that only because it's in the second Christopher Lee Euro Horror Collection set. September 23rd, 1944, Arsenic and Old Lace. I mentioned that because it's coming out on Criterion. Absolutely. September 25th, 1959, The Mummy, Hammer's version. I mentioned that because our friends Steve and Alistair at Hammerama did an episode of that. And I mentioned October 4th, 1970, The Vampire Lovers, because Hammerama is going to do an episode of that that has not been released yet. Richard, I'm going to propose we skip the What's Up with Richard, What's Up with Jeff, and kind of combine that and tell everyone what we're going to do. That works for me, because honestly, there's nothing happening on the block right now. After I wrapped up the Flash Gordon thing, uh, I'm kind of in this you know, calm before the storm, because coming up, we've got some stuff lined up because by the time our next episode comes out, it will be in the midst of the Halloween season. So we do want to share what's coming up as of, I will say this though, I, I, I should say this, September 30th, I believe is my 10th anniversary of the blog. I launched monstermoviekid.wordpress.com 10 years ago, 2012. Uh, right before I did my very first countdown to Halloween, and I, I came right out of the gate. I, you know, launched the site, and the next day started the countdown and did 31 consecutive days of posts, and uh, even bled on into the first few days of November. Are you going to do a special post or anything? I will. I'll do a post, and it will probably be a kind of combo. Happy anniversary to me and tune in tomorrow because the countdown will start. Probably something like that. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Why don't you share with everybody what we're cooking up? Yeah. So you mentioned the calm before the storm. It's going to be a little less stormy this year for both of us because we have decided to join forces and do the countdown together, which means we will alternate days. One day at ClassicHorrors.club, I will talk about a movie and the next day Richard will. The connective tissue, if you've ever gone on a long car ride and tried to pass time by playing the name game, that is where you say the name of somebody and the next person has to say the name of someone else whose first name begins with the last letter of the first person's name. I think people, some people will know 
what that is. It, I, think, I think some people will know and some people will just scratch their head. The, the point is, I'm going to start out on October 1st. I think it is Boris Karloff. That's the name Richard gave me. So I have to watch a movie with Boris Karloff. He has to come up with a name of someone whose first name starts with K. And I will just give away that. I chose Kurt Newman. They may be an actor and a writer or director. You know, they made the person has to be involved with the movie. It doesn't have to be the star. I'm not even particularly writing about the person. I'm just, you know, reviewing a movie that they're in or that they had a part to do with. Yeah. So then I would have to, I will go on October 3rd with a name that starts with N. That's how that's going to work. It'll become clear. Just kind of bounce back and forth between our sites each day. We'll direct you there, I'm sure, at, so that you can easily do that just by clicking a link. But that's going to be fun. That's going to be half the work for both of us, hopefully combining to make something greater than the individual parts. Countdown to Halloween page that we're, we're part of. So we'll have some logos will pop up on the page. We covered the big guns, but we also cover people that you'd never think of for a countdown to, to Halloween. Directors and actors and, and writers. And I'm looking at my list here and there's a, a pretty fun list of, of movies that covers a pretty broad spectrum. I, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And then some of the names Richard would give me, I'm like, who? And you'd look them up and yeah, they've got the, the horror connections. That was the fun thing is like when we had that letter, it's like we were both going on lists. It's like, all right, who can we then? I'll totally admit that when he gave me this one, I'm like, okay, <laughs> okay, what can I, what can I do? You know? And yeah, it was so. Well, you know, I was try trying to treat it seriously and that's the first name that came to mind. So half the work and twice the fun. Rich, tell us what we're doing for our next meeting. Well, we're we're doing a couple of fun things in the month of October. On the podcast, we are going to be doing a fun double feature of The Raven. We're going to be taking a look at the 1935 version with Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi, and the 1963 version with Boris Karloff and Vincent Price and Peter Lorre and Jack Nicholson and Hazel Court. Two very different films, both, I think, a lot of fun. We won't give the details until, I think, the podcast, but we've got something special lined up that'll come out after the podcast, closer to Halloween, that I think is going to be fun. It'll be a special special video that we've got uh, lined up. Yeah, it'll be on our, our Classic Horrors video YouTube channel. October, going to so. be a busy month for us, and it's our favorite time of year, that wonderful time of year. I know I'm ready for it. We will go out with the song Future World by a group called Trans Am. It's from their 1999 album, Future World, available on Apple Music. Thank you for listening, everybody. Take care, everyone.